Welcome to the Schools Out podcast with Mike and Miles. Longtime educators Mike Ditzenberger and Miles O'Shea discuss educational issues to provoke thought and encourage solutions. The potential of public education is limitless. We must work together to overcome obstacles to realize that potential and create new structures that work for everyone. The system is broken. Everyone deserves better. We can get there together. School is out. Now let's get started. Hey, Miles. Hey, Mike. Oh, what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about school lunch. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we both put some time into, into this one, and uh, we didn't even scratch the surface. That's what we were talking about just before we recorded. Uh, th- th- this is a deep, deep subject. Where did we even, where did we come up with this idea? Like, what, what were we thinking to come up with this? Well, what we were talking about is a conversation about snacks in school. Yeah. And we started talking about all the different ways that food is present in school. And then we moved into looking at lunch and breakfast and all those different things. Yeah, I think where we were going with it and why we said this would be a great topic is it, it spiraled from the availability of food into the immense, observationally immense amount of food waste in schools. And then of course I had to talk to my wife because she's my go-to and she said, schools, she works in a hospital system, she said, imagine hospitals too. So when you talk about federally funded food sources, the availability of them, how much food is in front of kids regularly, then inevitably how much food is going to be wasted with that availability. And that's pretty interesting. And then I think eventually down the road with some of our research and talking, we got to student achievement, yeah. which we probably always end up on, and, but we got there. And then we, we even dabbled into a little nasty subject of, of the equity piece and how food is, is driving inequity or even contributing to inequity. Right. So, so it's all there. There it is. So where do you want to start? Let's talk about, well, let's start off easy. Let's talk about snacks in school. Sure. So we say talk, let's start off easy. There's no easy topic when we talk. But and Mike, you're you're a principal at an elementary school. Yeah. And when we were talking about snack, you told me a lot about how snack drives your school day. In some classrooms it does, and I was fascinated to find out that in, in other classrooms it's it's not so present. So in the in the early grades, in your like K one, two Three, you definitely have the presence of snack time, which I find fascinating. So there's there's built into a teacher schedule, not necessarily the daily building schedule, but a teacher might square away a few minutes just for snack time. And how that snack time is proposed depends on the teacher. There's no school system or there's no policy or procedure in place for our school anyway that says you're going to offer snack time. Now let me ask you this. In that snack at your school or other schools that you know about, is the snack provided by the school district or is it provided by the students or who provides the snack? It depends on the classroom. Um, So, for example, there is a a teacher that I talked to that said, I don't provide snack at all and I don't ask parents to send in a snack. It's, I just don't do that. She said, I don't want the mess of doing any part of that. That's a waste of time on their behalf and on mine. So what she'll do is... And again, this is kind of sketchy. I don't even know if this is this is okay with school policy or whatnot, but if there's uneaten 
breakfast items per se. Those might go into a bin, and if there's enough fruit or breakfast items and it's snack time, that would be made available for snack. Okay. Whereas other classrooms, they put out a list to parents and they say, hey, if you want to contribute to snacks, you'll be this week, so-and-so will be that week, and then snacks come into the room, and then they eat whatever comes into the room. Now, I know from being a parent of a couple of elementary school students that snack is a big topic in our house. When your snack is coming up, there's a long process of thinking about what we're going to select and when we're going to get it and how we're going to get it to school and all those types of things. And my wife will go through five or ten different options with the kids and they'll think and discuss and deliberate because they want to make sure that they bring the right snack to school. I find that fascinating. That's one of the areas that I, I, I just dove into that at school thinking to myself, how much behavior and force of popularity is going into snack time at school. I remember back when I was in when I was in school. What you bring into school, what you wear, what toy you play with, whatever that is, it, it's a powerful force in in your identity and how you associate with your peer group. So I started asking those questions. Is there things that become popular and and things that, that wane off in popularity? In our school, the number one snack for, for all kids, if you're going to bring in a snack, is would be those goldfish crackers or those cheddar cheese fish crackers or whatever. That's a very popular snack. Not whales? No, well, whales are really good, <laughs> I would say. I, like, I prefer whales, I personally. prefer whales, but, I mean, it depends. I see a lot of Rice Krispie treats, But too. I feel like if I were an elementary school student and I brought whales, I might not be on the top pop- popular list. Exactly, and that's what I was fascinated about is does what you bring in demonstrate your your position within your 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 school society I, and I can't say that I'm ready to answer that yet I think that I, I could say of course it does but based on personal belief but I don't I can't back that with observation or research obviously but I don't think I'm wrong in saying that it definitely has a has a part to play um, so the teachers that do send out, snack time lists they get back what the kids bring in and I can see why that's a challenge for you and your family because you've got a way out I'm sure your kids are saying I can't bring that in for a snack and in the list that I have from our teachers in the elementary school it's you know this person is supposed to bring snack on this day are there students in school I have to assume there's students in that school who can't bring a snack to school yes definitely and it's an awkward conversation to have with a teacher because in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm going to force you to answer this question, but the, and they're very open in saying, we don't push the issue. And them saying that, that I'm not going to push the issue, clearly says there are people that can't afford or just don't push their kids to bring in snacks. So let's say if I'm a teacher and I'm making up that snack list and I have Ryan on September 7th, how do I know that Ryan can't bring a snack or is he still on the list for September 7th and I provide the snack for him or do we get to September 7th and everyone says, oh, Ryan didn't bring in a snack today? So the teacher has a backup plan for things like that. So if Ryan's still on the list come September 7th, then there'll be another snack in the classroom available. And that's in that developmental, when you're feeling the classroom out, if you kind of think that Ryan isn't going to bring in a snack because he missed the first time, you'll be ready the second time if he doesn't too. 
So there'll be something, a bag of pretzels or like the classroom teacher that says, I'm going to have whatever was left over from breakfast available because I'm not going to have them bring anything in. The, the teachers that do send out snack lists would have that as well. Okay. I don't want to get too <clears throat> down on like the personal logistics of yeah. the snack, but I think those things are interesting. But even if Ryan isn't able to bring in a snack, Ryan knows he's not able to bring in a snack. Sure. And on the day that there's pretzels or something else substituted for Ryan, he knows that he had no snack. Well, think of it a different way, too. So imagine that Ryan is not Ryan. Let's go with Ryan's best friend, Tim. Tim's in a different situation. So Tim is going to bring in a snack because perhaps his parents don't want to be put out as the parents that aren't going to send in a snack. But they also don't want to go and get a 24-pack of Rice Krispie Treats because that might be such and such dollars and that's just not in their in their income level right now or it's not in their budget. So they go out and they buy a large bag of cereal, which is acceptable as snack time for most classrooms. So Tim brings in a huge bag of cereal and when the teacher dumps that out onto napkins instead of giving every kid an individual Rice Krispie treat, you think that every kid in the class doesn't understand that they're getting a tissue full of cereal from Tim? They right. get it. Right. So there's a lot more into snack time than just everybody's getting a snack. No, no. There, that is a, there is a whole social function. And we also talked about the like prevalence of snacks, not just in elementary school, but in the lives of children in the year 2023. I'm going to put you in the time machine and go back to 1986, Miles O'Shea kindergarten. The only kindergarten memories I have are of snack time, but my snack experience in elementary school, because I was thinking about this, the only time I can ever remember getting a snack was in kindergarten, and I had half-day kindergarten, a.m. half-day kindergarten, but I know that probably halfway through my day, every day, the teacher wheeled a little cart into the room that had a pack of crackers and milks for everyone in the room. So every student got a milk, and there were always different crackers. There were either graham crackers, or saltines or Ritz crackers. I don't know who provided them. I know I didn't, but that was snack in kindergarten, and then snack ended for me in the 1980s after half-day kindergarten. Mm -hmm. But fast forward to 2023, and we were talking about this. My children are involved in some youth sports. After every youth sporting event that you go to, and I'm sure anyone who is listening to this and has children who have played sports know this, there's a snack. That's the focus of the sporting event. You can't have a game and sometimes a practice without a snack. And it's the same thing for the family. Today is our snack day, or our snack day is coming up next week. We've got to buy the snack. We've got to get it ready. We've got to put it in the cooler. We've got to bring it to the field. It's a whole huge thing in just providing snack. And you think about, I'm sending my kids to practice or game. They're going to get some exercise. And then you watch them all, and they're horking down some ice cream treat and a little hug or something after the game, <laughs> get double the calories they just spent on the activity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was news to me when you when you first told me that. I was like, that's not at all my experience from youth sports. Right. I mean, that's nothing. I have, I have nothing to even associate that with. There were no coolers. There were no nothing. You rode your bike to practice, and when you rode your bike home, you were tired and hungry. <laughs> so I was thinking about the teachers in your school or anywhere, elementary school teachers, do they feel like the teachers that are doing snack, 
that snack is necessary? Like the children in their room are so hungry, and I know that your school and most schools in the country now serve breakfast. Between, say, breakfast and lunch, and I don't know when snack happens. Does it happen in the morning or afternoon? I don't know. Probably different times? Usually if there's scheduled snack times, there's one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Okay. Do those teachers feel like the children are so hungry that they can't get through the day without having a snack? I don't think so. I think it just is there. I think it just magically appeared to say, like, okay. we're going to have a snack time. I don't I don't know. that. I, well, I actually, I could tell you, they don't think the kids are hungry. Mm-hmm. I just think that's the culture that we've, we've created. There's just snacks everywhere. There's just snacks everywhere. And even my daughter is four years old. She goes to preschool. It's the same thing. And both of my other children have gone to that same preschool from the moment they started. And they go to preschool for two hours. <laughs> we paid it for them to go for two hours. Yeah. And in that two hours, they have a snack every single time. They eat breakfast. They don't eat lunch there. They eat lunch at home. But in the two hours, they have there's a snack list, and you're the person of the day, and you bring the snack, and the kids have a snack in that time. Hmm. Well, let's so let's 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 go a different route too. Let's let's say that there's snack time. Now, last year at our building, we had the opportunity to take part in a program called the Fresh Fruits and Vegetables Program. Now we're going to add in a funded snack source by the government Mm -hmm. in addition to the snacks brought in from the outside. So we'll have a wealth breakfast, we'll have morning snack, which is around 9.30 in most classrooms that do snack time. Mind you, if let's say the school day starts at 8, where we're going to eat our breakfast at 8, and then at 9.30 we're going to have a snack, and then let's just say around noontime between 11.30 and noon we're going to have lunch. So every two hours, we're eating, which is fine. Okay, we're gonna have we're gonna eat multiple times a day. After that, we're gonna have another snack time. And in that snack time, last year, not this year per se, we're gonna have a fresh fruits and vegetables program three days a week. Now I have the option of saying I'm gonna have the classroom snack, or I'm gonna have a fresh fruit and or vegetable as a snack, or both. And then I'm gonna go home. That was just wild to me because we're we're now funding the snack per se. Like like you you asked earlier, is it provided by the school? No. Well, the fresh fruits and vegetables program it is, mm-hmm. and I guess under the under the regulations of the fresh fruits and vegetables program, they're offering different things or experiences for kids so that they might expand the horizons on food choice. I get that, but sometimes if those Sometimes those food choices got a little bit odd, but that's that's a different conversation. So, okay. While you were saying those things, I thought about a couple of different things, and we've discussed these a little bit. But the idea that food is always present for kids, say in an elementary school, and we're talking specifically about school. My wife just had a conversation with her pediatrician a couple of weeks ago. And the pediatrician said, up until about age five, kids are constantly eating. Like if you have young children at home, two, three years old, they don't have, say, set meal times. They might have the feedings, but they're also just constantly eating. And that's how really young children grow and develop. But once they get to age five, which coincidentally enough is about the time they start school, that doesn't need to happen anymore. 
But what parents do, and maybe what everyone has done, is assume that that kind of constant food or feeding needs to take keep taking place, and it doesn't. By the time you get to age five, you need three meals a day on average and maybe one snack. And that constant feeding cycle should end. I will say when I talk to the teachers in our building, obviously not on school time. For full disclosure, not necessarily for the podcast. And we're not trying to throw your teachers under the bus or anyone else because this isn't a culture that just exists in your school. No. I think when we were doing some research, this culture exists in the entire country. Right. But when when I was talking to the teachers, I asked them, I said, outside of snack time, do you let the kids still eat whenever they want? And overwhelmingly, the answer was no. So I was I was glad about that. Yeah. So like if it's outside of snack time and I'm munching on something, in I'd say the vast majority or all teachers said no, you're not allowed to eat now. And and I think that that surprised me because in our culture I assumed that if we were to put that out there, there would be parents, possibly even parents listening to this, who would say, well, when my kid's hungry, they're going to eat, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, there's a lot of research that goes against the idea, like you just said, of constant feeding. And it's okay not to be eating all the time. But on the other end of that, too, I was talking with a, a teacher parent that I work with. I said, I, I have a really interesting thing that I was thinking about. If you, on a weekend, observe your children and they're watching television because it's, it's TV time or whatever, do you think that they would also have a snack in their hand? And she said, probably, probably. I said, okay, so it it always seems to me that TV and snacks kind of go together. I said, here's an experiment that I've been fascinated to try. Give your child a a snack. You get to pick. You don't let them pick. And they're watching TV. And you pick the snack, and let's say it's those, those cheddar cheese fish crackers or whatever. At the end of the program, would they be more apt to tell you what they were watching or what they were eating? And she looked at me and said... That is the weirdest thing somebody's <laughs> ever asked me, and I never thought that I'd be able to, like, I never even thought about that. I said, the power of food is incredible, but the power of entertainment is incredible, too. I'm thinking, would a child be able to answer both things? I watched a Disney show, and I ate goldfish crackers. Mm-hmm. That fascinates me. Right. Because if you don't, if you can't say that I ate goldfish crackers, the eating to me, then, is just something that happened. And it was going to happen whether or not I needed to eat or not. It's just something that goes along with everything else. Right. And that goes hand in hand with what we're talking about here. If I'm educating children and they constantly have food in place, they might not have been hungry, but they felt either socially compelled or just culturally compelled to eat. And is that even necessary? Right. If you work in an impoverished area, the natural thing to do is to give out food. Let me tell you, boy, howdy, we give out food. We give out food, and, and it's, again, I'm going to raise brows, and people are going to start asking questions, which is the purpose of, of the entire podcast. The amount of food we throw away is staggering. The whole lunches that kids throw away. So you go through the lunch line, you have to, you have to do certain things in a lunch line to receive a lunch. You have to get your main. You must pick two fruits, two vegetables, milk, or water. And when, when kids come out of that line, if all they wanted was fruit cocktail... They're going to dump their entire main. One of our teachers said out of their entire 60 kid, uh, out of the entire three classrooms of, of their grade level, 
roughly 60 kids, eight kids dumped their entire lunch in the cafeteria. Dumped the entire lunch. They went through the line, picked out one item, and dumped the main plus everything else that was on their tray. Hmm. And, and I'm saying the, the garbages are so full. We have three lunches. They have to be emptied after every lunch, not because we want to keep things clean and tidy or anything. The bags are full. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have an image of my in my head of our summer school program in the school where I work, and we give out lunches at the end of our session. So students take a lunch and then leave. And... The first year that I watched this, we literally could not give the lunches away to the students as they left. And if we required that they take the lunch in the bag, they would throw it in the trash can right out. Not everyone, obviously. Right. But a lot of students would take that lunch and throw it right in the trash can. And with that statement that I made previously, I'm not trying to say at all that schools should not help in providing students with food, especially students who need that food. I think what we have come to is that perhaps we're providing students with too much food at times or not the right kind of food. And those things kind of go hand in hand. But, you know, I had a chemistry professor in college, and she said you can do whatever research you want on whatever diet you want to eat. It breaks down like this. Calories consumed, calories burnt. And we're going to talk about, I think, the federal regulations for school lunches and those things. And they have changed, and there's certain requirements that all schools have to meet. But if students are being given too many calories, no matter what they are, good, bad, or indifferent, then they're going to be in a bad nutritional state, perhaps, and you have 40% of students in some measures in the country that are in childhood obesity. I agree. And, and I think one of the other things that we're going to explore in this is going to be how, well, we, we already mentioned that it's going to be how school lunches or the federal mandates that, that go into school lunches contribute to certain inequities within our school. And let me paint this picture in your head. And, and I think people listening are going to go, oh my gosh. If you are if you work in a school and you see a kid who packs a lunch, brings from home, and in their lunchbox they have nine items. Okay, that, that's not unheard of. Nine items. They might have a sandwich. They might have a dessert. They might have a drink. They might have some candy. There could be, there could be a number of things in that lunch. So there could be some snack cakes, some crackers, there could be some yogurt containers, there could be all kinds of stuff in this lunch. From a very early age, say five to, to who knows how old, I've seen it as, as late as third and fourth graders, when they're done with their lunch, they feel compelled to dump their lunch. So even the packers, even the kids that bring from home, and you will hear from teachers, if I see a kid dumping their lunchbox that has an unopened yogurt or has an unopened snack cake, I have to run over to them and say, you take that home. Your parents spent money on that, and you're going to take that home and give it back. That's a fine practice. But my thing is, is we're not allowed to say that for a school lunch. If a kid has a school lunch and it's a like a cheeseburger sitting on a plate, <clears throat> and I went through the line to get that, and I don't want it, 
Into the garbage it goes. And that is a perfectly fine cheeseburger. I'm not saying that we need to stack up all the unused cheeseburgers that, that everybody's hands have been on, but at the same time, look at the difference in your head there. Your parents paid good money for that, or your parents spent money on that lunch. Well, they spent money on the other lunch, too. Mm -hmm. And it's going right into the garbage. And it's acceptable for that, but not for the other. It's just something to think about. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's really interesting. And it's hard when you start to think about the idea of free lunch for students. And there's always been free and reduced lunch available for students, at least right. in the recent recent memory. There are now schools that are able to offer free lunches to all their students, yes. which I think is a, a really great concept. We're not just going to have some students in this building that are able to get a free or reduced lunch. We're just going to be able to make it available to everyone. Right. With that, though, comes some some different layers of students then saying, this is free, I don't want it, or this is free, I don't value it. Right. That and, and how much of that are we teaching kids to do? We talked earlier off podcast, but I'll, I'll bring it up now, about in our school we have what's called Packer's Choice. And if there's something I want, let's say a milk, I, have, I could either take 60 cents and pay for a milk. This was last year anyway. I could take 60 cents and pay for a milk, or I could, I could invoke what's called Packer's Choice, walk through the lunch line and say, I, I would like Packer's Choice, get a milk, and I have to take two vegetables, throw the two vegetables away to get the milk. There's the, I don't have value in the vegetables, I just wanted the milk. So that's very, very interesting. Once again... Lots of throwaway, but now no value in the other two items that I have to take to get the milk. And it is easier for students to throw away things that they didn't pay for or that their parents didn't pay for. Sure it is. I'm not sure, though. You just said that, you know, you have students who are packing lunch from home that have, might have nine items in their lunchbox, and they're throwing things away as well that their parents paid for and packed them and did all of those things. I don't know. I think it would have to be a little bit of a further investigation to that. But it seems like, to me, as soon as you say that something is free, you don't need to do anything to get this, that at least um, on even a subconscious level, it devalues that mm -hmm. in some way. Sure. And I think even even... For me personally, it's not even the fact that it's free. And again, I mean, I, I don't want to paint myself a certain way, but look at the time that went into making that. Look at the single-serve plastics that go into that just to throw it away, never to be used, just to get something else. And that's only one instance. So the number of, of prepackaged plastics that we that we provide students for free like you said that are undervalued that get thrown away because they were either touched and not consumed now must be thrown away or weren't wanted to begin with and expire and then are thrown away so there's no value in all of the resources that went into making it or packaging it it's that it's mind-blowing to me now while we're talking about this i'm going to bend this in a little different direction because i don't want what i'm saying to have like a slant to it i'm going to try to slant it the other way so when I said that maybe people don't value things that are free, 
this week at school, as students were coming in, I was joking around with them, and we set up um, grab-and-go breakfast carts at our school. So students are coming in, they're grabbing the breakfast. A lot of students don't take the breakfast for whatever reason as they're coming in. And I was joking around. I said, at, at our school, we have free breakfast, free lunch, and free learning. Mm-hmm. We're giving away all three of those things for free. And we have a ton of students who are coming to us every day that don't value that free education that we're giving to them also. And that's a really interesting thing to think about. Why don't they want to take advantage of the free education that they're being provided? Is there something associated with it being free? And sometimes when I talk to students, I say, you know, we could look at other countries where young people literally die for the right to get an education or for the ability to get one. And we have people all over this country that don't want the free education that they're being offered. And that's a lot of times hard for me to accept and start to look at the product. Is there something wrong with the product? The same way with the free lunch or the free breakfast, it might not be that it's free. It might be that as you make it free, somehow everyone associated with it is devaluing that. Right. Right. And it goes back to the what we said earlier is a lot of people assume that because we work in impoverished areas that one way to fix it is to provide lots of food or that the people in impoverished areas are hungry. And we're challenging that not to say that they aren't, but we're challenging the system that we've created to serve them. And school lunch and snack is, is, is our topic today. But I'm saying there's a lot of things that are very evident in our school days that raise questions. And if we, if we want to put value on food, on, on food equity or the availability of food to all, look at... I say primarily look at breakfast choices in schools and overwhelmingly in our impoverished areas, if our kids were coming to us hungry, lot, I mean, lots of kids, as people might think, are coming to us hungry, starving, whatever, then why is it on breakfast day when animal crackers are served, so few breakfasts are actually taken by students, but... But when it's packaged waffle day, I can't get enough breakfast because kids want more than what they're Mm -hmm. allowed to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a hot item. Those waffles, they literally go like hotcakes. Sorry to use a pun, but the animal crackers, we're throwing away as many as... I mean, it's it's unbelievable how many we throw away because kids don't want them. They have no value in them as a food source. They are free but they're not as fun, they're not as tasty, they're not as whatever as the sweet syrupy waffles in a package. So I'm just saying it's an observation. Do with that what you will. And when you start to look at the nutritional value of the food that we're offering students in school, I know for a fact that a student can go to a school in the state of Pennsylvania and get a sleeve of chocolate donuts and a chocolate milk every day for breakfast. And that's a federally funded breakfast that they have access to every single day. Sure. And there's something about that that just doesn't sit right with me. And then that same student can go to lunch and get a piece of pizza and french fries or tater tots 
and slather it with ranch dressing every single day. And just looking at that from a parent's perspective for one second, instead of an educator's perspective, I am sending my child to a place where now I don't have control over what they do. Someone else controls that. And they're able to make choices for themselves. And even if I, as a parent, am requiring or providing healthy meals that I know are nutritious and going to be within the guidelines that I've set forth, then I'm giving them to someone else that they have to go to, a place they have to go to every day, and they get a sleeve of chocolate donuts, a chocolate milk, a slice of pepperoni pizza, french fries, and whatever else. I have no control over that. And it's very difficult to think in those terms of what we're providing our students what the nutritional value is, and then how that affects them. Now imagine what you're saying right now. You're providing that. Your home source of food is different than our school source of food. You know because you've educated yourself on how to provide your family with a healthy, well-balanced meal. Now what about families who don't or can't do that? They are sending their kids to our school. Our kids are, their kids are eating that as their food source, you might send your kids with a packed lunch thinking, you know what, I don't want my kids to take what's available because I know what it is compared to what I'm providing, and it might be rated lower in, in any category than what I'm providing. So my kids aren't going to take those options. They're going to take the options that I provide. What if you couldn't do that? Right, exactly. There Obviously, there are families in any community that are in part depending on the food that the school provides to nourish their children. Right. They're depending on that. And we're teaching their children and those families that it's okay to eat a sleeve of donuts and a chocolate milk every day for breakfast. Yeah. And then at the same time, sending them to family and consumer science class someday, teaching them about the nutritional guidelines of what makes up a good balanced diet. And we're not providing that to them in our schools in a federally funded environment. Absolutely not. And what's what's staggering too is you were telling me about your last pediatrician's visit. Tell tell me again, what did your pediatrician say about about sending his own kids to school? So our pediatrician said that he doesn't allow his children to eat breakfast or lunch at school. <laughs> that's that's just crazy. To think about that's just that is absolutely crazy to think about. Now, <clears throat> imagine this. So you send your kids, you don't allow your kids to eat school lunch. What do you think might happen if you do send your kid to school with a packed lunch and it's say um, pizza day? Maybe pizza isn't every day, and your kid really wants pizza. Do you think there's ever going to come a time in your child's life that your kid would throw away that packed lunch just to get pizza and come home and say, oh, thanks for that lunch? It may have already happened. I bet you it's already happened. <laughs> and you know, like my children are young now, but as they grow older, I have no doubt that I'm going to lose all of that control. Right. And my own son, who's in second grade, said, Daddy, can I please get breakfast once a week? And I don't know what that day is. It must be something he really wants because we've said no breakfast. You get breakfast at home. But he's negotiated 
one day a week that they're having a really good breakfast, it seems like to me. And so that's part of why I set out looking at the, the social function of food in school also. Imagine if it became a social function to eat on pizza day. Not only is it good, but if all of your friends or if a majority of your friends or the, the leader of your friend group says, well, I love pizza so much on pizza day, I only eat pizza day. And now it's a, a cast of kids is like, I'm going to eat pizza because it's socially acceptable and encouraged to do that. Now put that into breakfast. And if it's chocolate donut day for breakfast, everybody's eating chocolate donuts because that's the popular thing to do. Buy into that how you will, but it, social function is a powerful force in schools. And now put that into, so, put that into breakfast, lunch, Snack and let's go back to the snack that we already talked about. But you got the chocolate on this chocolate milk, you got the pizza, you got the fries, you got the ranch. Now we got a snack going on, and let's say it's Rice Krispie treat coming in, and we're loading up on. And I can't tell my children not to have the snack that someone brought in because they're not going to be accepted in that classroom if every day they're not having the cool snack or it's someone's birthday or whatever that is, right. And I'm not going to get into the brain research. I did it walking into this, but I'm not going to bore any listener with the with all of brain research on how brains are fueled. But brains chew up sugar. They chew up sugar, but if there's too much sugar that they can't chew up fast enough, they're going to chew it up as fast as they can, but they're not going to develop properly either. You've got to have a well-balanced diet that includes more than just glucose and when you're oversupplying that and there could be nutritionists out there saying you don't even know what you're talking about i i've done a little bit of research knowing that whatever i offer as a as a breakfast choice is 50 percent of it has to be a grain okay by weight well here's a cinnamon roll i think i've covered it (laughs) i think i'm covered and there might be icing on top of it, which there is, or a chocolate donut, whatever. I'm covered under the regs. That's still what's available to eat. So put that on top of what's brought in for snack time, on top of what's available for lunch. And now we're asking our kids to produce certain test scores in order to make our schools have a certain fake grade. We're failing as a system thinking that what we're providing our kids to eat is going to get them where they need to go. And related to that, some other research we did heading into this particular episode looked at factors that contribute to overall performance on test scores, school performance. And one study that we looked at said that the single least expensive thing any school district could do to spend money on to improve test scores is to improve the quality of their school lunches. Yes. Not reduce class size, not hire more teachers, not find other resources, because those are really expensive things. But if they spent the money on just improving the options that they serve for breakfast and lunch, they could greatly improve student performance. That is fascinating to me, and I can't wait. I think that's going to be a topic that has to come back, because believe it or not, it's very difficult to get somebody to want to speak on issues like that. I mean, it's, it's difficult at our level, I should say, or at my level to speak with somebody who wants to openly talk about how much money does it take to find vendors locally that fit the regulations 
to provide healthier options and how much on a bottom line does it cost to choose those healthier options. We did talk about what if we had what if we had our own nutrition source? We we grew our own vegetables. Well, that would compete with our outside vendors. That would compete with the program that that funds or that, that sources our food in the school. So I can't just come in and say, hey, today I'm providing the entire school with pizza from whatever company. Right. Because the company that we hire to feed our students would say, that's a breach of contract. You can't do that. So there are many, many hoops to jump through in order to, in order to have a program that would source fresh vegetables or local food, but again, that, that, that's a whole other rabbit hole that goes in a direction that, that would take months to research. But let's, let's focus on this for a second as you're talking, I'm thinking. So there's a price associated with every meal in school that is served. There's a federal amount that's reimbursable. So say that amount for a lunch, and I don't know exactly what it is. We could find out what it is for this school year. Say that amount is $4.50. So a school district is getting reimbursed $4.50 for every lunch that they serve. And there's a different number for breakfast, and it's lower than that. I think maybe this year it's $3, say something like that. A school district can spend just $4.50 if they want to. They can spend more than that. And those districts that are using outside vendors have to be providing profit to those outside vendors. So there's food service companies all across the country that their entire business is providing food for schools, doing that. So what is the amount that those places are actually spending on their meals opposed to the federal reimbursed rate? And are districts spending more than the federal reimbursed rate to provide to those food service vendors? I doubt it. Or is it just the federally reimbursed rate? <laughs> And there's a whole aspect of finances that go into this that becomes very murky and can be upsetting to a lot of people. Sure. I think we understand that. We do. But there are different ways to look at this and maybe to solve the problem. And, you know, we looked at those districts in that study that we looked at that said if you just spend a little bit more money on your meals, your student performance will increase exponentially. So you got your federal reimbursed rate of four fifty. You're going to spend another three dollars per meal, say, for lunch to make it healthy, good, nutritious options. Right. And when when we start talking about the solution for this, or or what what can we do as people, as parents, as teachers, as principals, the conversation is is going to have it's going to get uncomfortable as it should, or otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it here. But you're going to have people defending their own jobs. I know that it gets to be a touchy situation. Are you trying to say that I'm not doing the best that I can do to provide for our kids? I'm not saying that at all. I might be saying that you're doing the best that you can given the resources available to you, and that might be part of the problem, the resources available to you based on what you are able to get from a vendor with the money you have available to do it. I'm saying as a community, one of the solutions that we could talk about as teachers, as principals, as parents are ask questions, what are our kids eating and I'm, am I okay with that? Those are the routes that we need to take in order to have the vendors, the food sources, what our kids are eating on a regular basis in an open discussion and possibly make change. 
if I know that what we just talked about in however many minutes is the only thing that my kids are eating and I don't have the ability to provide some of the food choices that out, that are outside of a school lunch, then th- that should raise awareness. Right. And we know that building principals have very little control, no control over what's served for breakfast and what's served for lunch. They might have some control over what is served for snack, but when we were talking about this, you were telling me that snack is such a part of the school culture that it's dangerous in some ways to talk about not doing a snack or changing snack or whatever those things are. So for, I always say the upstairs classrooms, say the the older grades in an elementary school, four, five, and six, the vast majority of them do not have snack time. So is that that statement from me enough for a listener to say, well, my child will will have a snack? That's not to say that there isn't a pause or if there, there could be an opportunity for a snack, but most of our teachers in those grades are saying, our kids aren't hungry anyway. They don't need a snack. They'll eat lunch and be fine. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if somebody likes me, like me comes in and makes a procedure, I won't say a policy, a procedure that our school is done with snack. We are no longer providing snack. That statement from me will create havoc in our community. There will be enough people coming to me saying, I challenge that, and I'm going to the school board because you said that. Right. I guarantee that would happen. Right. And we've looked, I feel like we've covered this issue very broadly and looked at a whole bunch of different topics. I'm going to say a word to you. And if you grew up in the 80s and maybe the 90s, it's going to have some meaning. Book it. Book it. (laughs) And book it popped in my mind when we were talking about school lunch and food also. And when we were talking about this, Mike, you said that one of, if not the biggest motivators for any human being is food. Yes. But Book It was a program by ran by Pizza Hut. I've read about it, created in the 1980s. The um, CEO of Pizza Hut had the idea. My Friday nights were spent at Pizza Hut. My Friday nights were spent with a personal, I can see it right now, pepperoni, personal pan pizza, in that beautiful cast iron little round dish. And the rest of my family was there getting another pizza because I had earned my personal pan pizza for reading that book and got the star on my book it button and I can still feel it and it scratched. And I read the books to get the pizza. Mm-hmm. Miles, I'm not gonna lie to you, my experience, not to be a Debbie Downer on book it, um, but my experience with book it was entirely different. I grew up in such a rural area, it would have taken us a half hour to drive to a pizza hut to get a pan pizza, so Book It had no effect on me whatsoever. Okay. Whereas other kids, it had a great impact. Kids, I found out later in life, like you who had a pizza hut closer to them, we had Book It in our school, but we, we devalued it because none of us could make it to a pizza hut. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was and, so far away. And... But I understand the value of that food because well, it's, it's, it's like something else you said. I mean, what, what as a principle do we do to immediately reward kids? If we have nothing else on deck and we need a quick reward, what's our number one go-to? Pizza party. Boom. There's your reward. 
and it's and what did we just say this entire time we've been talking? Healthy food choices. Let's look at the food choices. We are victims of the same system because what do we want to do? Reward kids with unhealthy food choices. Right. <laughs> and and I, we were both teachers at one point. I can tell you, in my drawer always was a bag of Jolly Ranchers. Oh. They were cheap. Kids loved them, and I could give them out like candy for little things that they would do getting this done or going a little bit above and beyond. And those things were flying around the room all the time. All the Sugaring time. kids up. And and I'm not a good role model either. Kids know I like candy myself. I'm eating candy all the time. I like Starburst. I like Jolly Ranchers, things like that. But when I eat lunch, I always have a pretty nutrition, nutritious lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that I don't like school lunch. I like school lunches. There's a lot of items on school lunches that I like, but I'm curious, why do I like them? You know, why are they why are they good, especially when the item itself... Let me give you a quick example. I love spaghetti day. I love school lunch spaghetti. And, and people might chuckle at this because it looks like an ice cream scoop of spaghetti on a tray, but when I see that, my mouth starts to water immediately thinking, oh man, I could just mess that up. That, is so, that looks so good. Um, but now I want that, I want that scoop of spaghetti, a double fruit cocktail and a strawberry milk. Right. I mean, that's what I want to get. Right. And I personally have a lot of positive feelings with school lunch. Mm-hmm. I know in elementary school, lunch was 90 cents. And I know I paid a buck every day and I got a dime back. And I know I spun that dime on my lunch table every day. And I know there was only one lunch on the whole menu that I packed for. And that was goulash because I didn't like the school goulash. Right. But I also know that by the time I got to the later grades of elementary school, when you were in the last lunch, the cafeteria workers were coming around with all the extras and they were filling you up. And I genuinely liked school lunch. I can name my favorites. Yeah. I loved most of them. Right. I even loved it in high school when they had mashed potatoes with atomic yellow gravy. That was the best. I loved it. I loved it. But just like I was talking about with Book It, and I don't think I made the point, you're teaching nutrition with every food experience that you provide to students. Yes. When I associate reading with Pizza Hut, on some level, they hooked me at age nine that Pizza Hut was great. Yeah. And they go, Pizza Hut went hand in hand with that book. I would do anything to read that book to get that pizza. Right. And I can't think of Pizza Hut today, 30 some years later, without thinking of booking. They got me. But if we're serving our students a sleeve of chocolate donuts every day, we're teaching them that that's what breakfast should be like for the rest of their lives. I agree. And that's that's something that I made a connection to earlier in the week when I was talking with people, a, a connection that we that we give them for the rest of their lives. Imagine I mean you and I grew up in in, in the same time. Think of those cereal commercials from the 80s. Whenever you see like cocoa puffs, but at the end of every one of those commercials they would say part of a well-balanced nutritional breakfast. And I'm saying, what part? Because Cocoa Puffs, just because they're made of grain somewhere, that's the exact same thing as saying that those donuts that we're providing kids are part of a well-balanced, nutritious breakfast. And I challenge that. 
I do challenge that. I can't say that, that Cocoa Puffs or the donuts are the, are the answer, but it is a powerful force to have that in front of you to start making decisions for you. Imagine, too, that if, if that's provided to us for free, here we go again, back to that, that free that free selection for us. If the Cocoa Puffs are free, then do I want the mini wheats? Maybe not. If the donuts are free, do I want what else might be provided at home? What else, what else is free even outside of school and are those two things connected? So if I, have, if I have free donuts at school and I have free cereal provided for me outside of school, what cereal do you think my kids are more apt to want? Something that tastes more like the donuts or something that gives them more fiber in their diet? That's powerful. Food is powerful. Mm -hmm. So powerful. And whatever habits you establish or whatever you are taught that stays with you. I mean, those nutritional values that you learn, if you grew up in a house where your parents only allowed you to have certain foods or there were some regulations on what you had or whatever, those things stay with you. The other thing with this, I think, is equity, though. And we talked about this a little bit. But if you look at any research on food and what people have access to, right. the most expensive foods are those fresh healthy options. Yes. And the people that have the most access to those are the most affluent people. And the people that have access or can only get the processed, prepackaged, not as good for you foods are people with less. And are we doing that same thing in our schools? Are we contributing to the same system inside and outside of schools? I can't help but to think that we are. Go back to what I like about the pizza. I like that spaghetti scoop of pizza. Well, what's easier to make? A full meal with a protein, a vegetable, and a potato? Or Totino's pizza rolls? What's cheaper and more available? A bag of Totino's will feed my kid for a dollar. And if I make a meal, I have a time and financial investment in the entire meal. I might have leftovers from it, but you know what? It still doesn't even come close to that dollar bag of pizza rolls that tastes kind of like a school meal. It's the same thing as the donuts and the Cocoa Puffs. Right. Now, think about this, though, as we start to talk about solutions or things that could be done moving forward. Think about if a school district said not just that we're going to spend the $4.50 federal allotment on this lunch and it's free, and we're sorry, but this is the best we can do for you for the $4.50. But what if a school district said, we genuinely care about your nutrition and health. We're going to prepare good quality fresh meals for you every day that are they're going to impact your brain and your learning. And we're going to spend, we're going to make the investment. We're going to spend the extra three or four dollars. We're going to double that allotment every day. And there are districts that do this. But what would that say to the people who are coming to those schools every day that we care about what you eat? We don't just care that we're going to feed you because you're hungry. And we know that there are thousands of kids going to school every day that are very hungry. And their source of food right. does come from schools. But that we're going to give you high-quality options that will help you be healthy for the rest of your life. 
And how appropriate would it be to say, I'm not going to give you fish. I'm going to teach you how to fish by doing that. Right. Now, I'm not only going to provide you high-quality meals, but that will transfer settings into your home and say, I want to provide my children more of what they can get at school. That is teaching us how to fish. And I'm so interested in the topic of sustainability and teaching people how to, some people say, like, return to their roots or to return to the skills that most people once had. And during the pandemic, I heard the ideas of the Victory Gardens coming back and that were popular during World War II where everyone just took a patch of land and started to grow their own produce because there was a food scarcity and it was good for the country. But what if we began to give our students the ability again to grow some of their own fresh fruits and vegetables. And when you grow your own stuff, it's not expensive. It yeah. costs a buck for a pack of seeds and some time and some knowledge and a little bit of water, and eventually you get fresh fruits and vegetables to right. eat. But we don't teach our kids that on large scale very often, I don't think. But what if we started to do those things? And what if we started to have gardens at schools, and I know some communities and schools do this. They do an awesome job with this. Right. But what if that became more the norm than just this package of donuts is the best we can do? I think that's an awesome idea, and I, I can't disagree. And I, I would say that we should. I, I'll go out on a ledge and say we should do more of that because it doesn't take a lot of effort. It doesn't even take a lot of thought to get going in that direction. You don't need to invest in a major greenhouse. With the technology that we have available to us, and, and even grow light technology. It doesn't even take that much technology. Think about it. I could put a grow light on a timer that was made in the, in the 60s and still have soil, seed, water, and light and can begin. You did it. You and I both did it when we were in kindergarten and first grade. You get your milk carton, cut the top off, and you put a seed in it, and you take it home like it was a treat. But do that on a grand scale and make it actually grow and produce. Right. That's not a hard thing to do. Right. And then start to build on that a little bit. And we live in a fairly rural area. But think about all of the food sources that are produced just in the region where we live with dairy farms and different farms and different produce and meat products and all of those things that come out. And think of the connections that you could build with those local farms and farmers and producers and the opportunities to educate the students in the school or form partnerships where those students can visit those places and learn how those things are made. There's powerful opportunities there to get back to that sense that we're going to learn how to live in a sustainable, healthy, nutritious way instead of this other direction I feel like we're moving that is just it's cost-effective. <laughs> it's cost-effective, and that's maybe the best that you can say. I was trying yeah. to find the best way to say that yeah. in a polite way, and yeah. I could not think of one. It's cost-effective. Instead of having, instead of paying people to come into our schools and use the equipment, by the way, that's there, the equipment is still there, and I would say in, in, in the schools in our district, it's still there. The massive soup pots, the massive griddles. There's a griddle in our school it's not only a griddle, it's, it's like a range. It's got an oven in it, and, it, and its surface isn't, it's not four burners, it's a griddle. Never been turned on, doesn't get used barely at all. 
instead of those instruments, instead of doing real food preparations, it's four double convection ovens with like 10 trays a piece that you're just warming up frozen food to give to kids. Where did, where did we go? Where did we go with all of that? There's no food prep anymore. There's food warming up and serving it. There's massive warming up of food and scooping fruit cocktail from a very large can into a very small plastic container to maybe get thrown away. Or to put three celery sticks into another plastic cup that will get thrown away because if I accidentally picked up the celery instead of the fruit cocktail, I didn't want that. Poof. <laughs> Unless there's peanut butter on it, of course. And I think we could probably talk about this for another three or four or five episodes. And there's, I think, a lot of politics that goes into how school lunches got to where they are, how food in general has gotten to the point where it is in this country. Because there's larger things with fast food and processed food and all of those things and Pizza Hut and their connections to schools. Uh, one thing that I was thinking of, my mom went to elementary school and she told me that, and we, we did a little research and saw that the federal school lunch program started in the 1940s, 1946. Right. My mom told me that when she went to elementary school, they didn't serve lunch at her elementary school. All the students walked home for lunch. You went to school, you went for a while, they dismissed, you walked home, you ate lunch at your house, and then he came back. Right. And then at some point, you know, they started having lunch at school through the federally funded program. But think of how far we've come, or I would say fallen since then, where you could have children. And I'm sure that the household that my mom grew up in, and they weren't affluent by any means, but there, are, there were people that weren't doing as good as her family was doing, I would say. So the school lunch program and the ability to feed people in school is necessary. But think of how far we've come, where you could go to school, go home and eat lunch with your mom, and then go back to school, to now where my children are going to school, and I have to be worried about what they're eating or teach them not to eat the food they're being served. Right. And like you said before, I'm sending my kids to school, they're being provided a school lunch, and I have to send them a snack? (laughs) And I have to to provide a, a snack for the class or whatever? It's like... Wow, we it, like you said, it's it's a bit of a fall. It's it's a bit of a fall, and I think the point of this podcast is to start asking questions. We always say that to one another. I have questions. There should be questions asked about this. We should we should have more of an involvement and and a voice in what is available and what's being offered as far as food choices and food availability in our schools. And the cool thing or the uplifting thing about looking at this topic or a lot of the other topics that we talk about is that there are places or patches in the country where they're doing it different or they're leading the way and they have examples of what that looks like. But I bet that if you look at where those things are happening, and I've looked at some of them, they're most often happening in affluent areas. And very few people people are going into impoverished areas and saying, we're going to transform the way these kids eat. And I, don't, I know why that is, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think we can transform what our children eat regardless of where they live. I don't think it, it doesn't have to be that way. The, the, the fact that people would ask questions and discuss and talk about what we're talking about now would be enough to make change. 
even small change at that. So I would say that for now, we've pretty well covered the topic of school lunch, and that, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, Mike? Well, not now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, better, I better keep it. Keep it where it is for now. And I think, like like we've said, the, you, we could have several more episodes on different areas of this or different topics. And probably the most exciting thing about this topic is where you could go or the possibilities if you can get into positions of influence and change where you can start to transform the way that children eat in our schools. Well said. So that will do it for this episode. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here for the next one. All right.